It's good to be back. It's good to see you all. Thank you for uh, praying for me and my family during the sabbatical. I'll be giving a little bit of a report on how the sabbatical went at the evening service tonight, and then a little bit more of a report on sabbatical at our annual meeting next uh, Sunday, right right after the service. Uh, so, but again, thank thank you so much for your prayers for that time, and thank you for letting me come back. <laughs> So we're, we're, we're starting a new series this morning in the book of Titus. And by way of introduction, I, I just want to comment on, on the reality of how lonely we are as Americans. I don't know if you've noticed this. Uh, all, all the surveys point this out, that through, com- compared to many different cultures and people around the world, Americans are a lonely people. And yet how ironic that is. Because in, in one sense, Americans here at the, at the beginning of the 21st century, we have, we have never been more connected with other people than we are right now. I mean, I, I left my cell phone uh, back in my, in my briefcase underneath the pew, but if I had it right here, I could pull out my cell phone and I could just immediately tell you uh, what what all of my friends are reading because they're connected to me uh, through Goodreads. And I could tell you what all of my friends are listening to at this moment because I'm connected to them through Spotify. And I can tell you what many of them are doing and eating and thinking because we're connected through Facebook and Twitter. And some of them, I can even tell you where they are because of Foursquare. Now, for some of you, you have no idea what those things are that I just mentioned. But a lot of you know. And I, I, I just barely scratched the surface of our ability to be constantly connected with each other. That, that really describes and defines the, the modern American experience. But in the midst of all this connection, constant, up-to-the-minute, up-to-date connection, we Americans are lonely. Sherry Turkle, in her book, Alone Together, notes that these days, young people would rather text than talk. And we've all observed, I'm sure we've all observed couples sitting in a restaurant at a table for two, staring not into one another's eyes, but down at their smartphones or their tablets. Maybe they're texting each other. I don't know, but we've all seen this. Maybe we've even done it. Our our mobile carriers, our our cell phone providers, now give us unlimited voice minutes. Why? It's not because they're so generous. It's because we're not interested in voice. It's, It's not voice that we're sending and receiving. It's data. It's text. It's information that we're sending and receiving. And the You know, the phone companies figure that out and they said, right, we'll charge you for that and we'll give you the voice for free. More than 25% of Americans live by themselves. And for those of us that don't live by ourselves, we increasingly live in homes alone together. So, you know, when I grew up, after dinner was over, the family gathered around the, the one television set. 
And I, I realize there are all sorts of problems with this, but we watch TV together. Now, after dinner, what do families do? They each scatter to their own individual screens where everybody can watch or engage in their own thing. What makes this really depressing is that we're doing this to ourselves. Robert Putnam wrote, uh, I think, an excellent book about a decade ago called Bowling Alone. And, And in that book, he observed that in our flight to the suburbs, in our retreat to the flickering screens, our own individual personalized flickering screens, in our, in our self-absorption, in, in our abandonment of the traditional family, Americans are lonely because we want to be lonely. We've made ourselves lonely through the very choices we make. It's kind of the modern condition. And yet the reality is underneath that, we long for a genuine life together. All the polls show that as well. We long for a genuine life together from from the Occupy and the Tea Party movements nationally to the multiplication of clubs and associations across our own city. We clearly desire more than the the connection that technology can provide. We we desire community. I, I think we desire community because we're humans we, we were made for community. I, I think you even see this, this desire, you know, in, in, the, in the trendy new thing in, in many restaurants where even though they're going to charge you an arm and a leg to eat there, they're not going to give you your own table. But you're going to sit at this long common table with a bunch of strangers to, to, to try to create some sense of community. How do we do it? How do we actually participate in life together? Well, it doesn't take long when you, when you, when you look around at the world, it doesn't take long to figure out that the, the way most people do it is by excluding everyone who's different from me. You, you know, the, the, the phrase is, is still true. Birds of a feather flock together. Life together, it turns out, is easiest when it's really just an extension of life by myself. When I'm surrounded by people that, you know, change the shirt and some features on the face could be me. In sharp contrast to that kind of thin vision of community stands Christianity. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a a German theologian Uh, He died in a Nazi prison camp. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote this about Christian community. He said, Christianity means community through Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ. Christianity means community through Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ. No Christian community is more or less than this. So this summer... We're going to consider what it means that the Christian life is not a solitary life, but it is life together in Jesus Christ and through Jesus Christ. And to do that, we're going to use Paul's letter to Titus. This letter was written, I I think, in the early 60s A.D., 
uh, before Paul's final imprisonment and execution in Rome under, under Nero. So he's not in prison when he writes this letter. And the purpose of the letter is to encourage uh, this, this man named Titus. Titus was an old and trusted colleague of Paul. He had been with Paul really almost since the very beginning. And Titus has been left on the island of Crete to, to basically finish uh, some work that was started, but, but, but isn't yet wrapped up. So there've been a bunch of churches planted and, and yet there's, there's some, some work still that needs to be done. Paul is writing to Titus about how to finish up that work with these churches. Paul wants to make sure that their life together in these local churches across the island of Crete actually reflect the faith and the truth that they share in and through Jesus Christ. So turn with me, if you would, to Titus chapter 1, verse 1. If you're using a Bible we provided, that's 1,857. It's a very small book. Uh, it's easy to flip right by it. It's, it's the last of the pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy and Titus. Titus chapter 1, and I'm going to read just the first four verses. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness, a faith and knowledge resting on the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time. And at his appointed season, he brought his word to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God, our savior to Titus, my true son in our common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. These opening four verses are just a Christian version of the standard way you would open any letter in the Greco-Roman world at this time. Paul identifies himself, he identifies the recipients, and he gives a brief greeting. But as usual for Paul, he takes that boilerplate that everybody would have used and he expands it. And he begins to let us know right away what, what the main themes of his letter are going to be. So there in verse four, look there in verse four to Titus, my true son in our common faith. Paul identifies Titus as a true son, it, it, not not meaning that he was his biological son, but rather that he was a genuine and an authentic, legitimate spiritual son in the common faith. And so right there, Paul lets us know that he's not just talking to Titus. He's actually talking over Titus' shoulder to these Cretan churches that Titus is going to be working with. And by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he's talking to us. He wants local churches also to prove their genuineness, that they also are true sons and daughters in this same shared faith. It's a community project that Paul is after here. Now, life together according to Paul, begins with this common faith, a, a shared faith. What, what is that faith? Well, that's really what he highlights right here in the, in the first four verses. There, there are three things that I want us to notice in, in Paul's introduction here. In our life together, our, our common faith first has a common purpose. It has a common purpose. That's verse 1. Second, it has a shared confidence, a shared confidence. It's verse two. Finally, our, our common faith has a public basis, a public basis. That's verse three. 
As we consider what Paul said to these Cretan Christians, I, I want you, and particularly the members of, uh, and regular attenders of Henson here, I want you to think about what, what do I have in common with the other people here at Henson? Is it faith? Or is it something less than faith that has brought me here in common with these people? What would it look like for us to demonstrate here at Henson that we, like Titus, are true sons and daughters in our common faith? All right, first, our faith has a common goal. Our faith has a common goal, and that goal is godliness. Look again there at verse 1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. Paul introduces himself as a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Of course, Titus already knew that. He didn't need to be told that. That's one of the things that lets us know that even though this is sent to Titus, Paul is expecting the Cretan church to be listening in on the letter. Now, to be a servant is to be under someone else's authority. It's to be about someone else's agenda rather than your own. To be an apostle, which is not a word that we tend to use, is to be an official authoritative spokesperson for someone else. Paul wants everyone to know right up front that he is delivering someone else's mail here. This isn't really Paul's letter in one sense. This is a letter from God, the Father, and from Jesus Christ. But now in in, in saying that, in letting people know that he's speaking on behalf of and doing the work of God himself, Paul's not like in a power play here. He's not trying to get people to think so much of him because he's not really in it for himself. Right right away, he lets us know that the purpose of his service and the purpose of his work as an apostle is for the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth. He's in it for them, for their faith, for their knowledge. Now, in that really simple phrase, Paul, I think, sums up what it means to have a relationship with God. On the one hand, it's a matter of faith. And faith is fundamentally all about trust. You can almost even put the word trust in there instead of the word faith. I think a lot of people think of faith as as fundamentally irrational. Faith is intellectual suicide. Faith is, is a blind leap. But that is never what the Bible means by faith, even if some people use the word that way sometimes. This is fundamentally relational language, relational language. In that sense, the opposite of faith is not reason, which is what, you know, your science teacher would tell you. No, the opposite of faith is fear. The opposite of faith is doubt. You see, faith is a response to the character of God, to his trustworthiness, his goodness, his holiness. Faith is fundamentally relational. It is about trust. Now, that immediately raises the other side of what it means to be in a relationship with God. If I'm going to trust God, I actually need to know something about him. So when Paul talks about the knowledge of the truth, what he's, what he's doing there is he's, he's talking about the gospel. It's kind of one of his shorthand for the gospel. 
This is how we know who God is. This is how we know something about him and know, in fact, that he's trustworthy and, 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 and therefore I should put my faith in him. In the gospel, in the person and in the work of Jesus Christ, God has revealed something about himself to us. God has revealed his absolute opposition to sin. And God has also revealed his absolute commitment to his people. His holy opposition to sin and to evil is displayed on the cross of Jesus Christ. This is the reality of the cross that nothing less than the death of the perfect son of God would do in order to pay the penalty for our sin. That's how bad sin is. That's how bad rebellion against God is who made us and, and who deserves our worship, who deserves our allegiance. But, but we've said no, we've rebelled against him. That's serious. That's not something God just wipes under the, uh, you know, wipes away or, or sweeps under the carpet. No, he takes it seriously. He's opposed to it. And, and that's revealed at the cross. But his loving commitment to his people is also displayed at the cross. For not even his own son was worth sparing in order to deliver us from our guilt and our bondage to sin. On the cross, Jesus took our place. On on the cross, Jesus bore the penalty that we deserved so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be reconciled with God. Do you see the amazing nature of the cross? The cross displays God's holiness, his opposition to sin, but it also displays his love and his mercy towards his people and it brings them together perfectly. Friends, here's the truth that we need to know about God if we would put our faith in him. Some people want to talk about about a relationship with God as if it were just an experience and truth didn't matter. Theology actually gets in the way of a relationship with God. Uh, Others want to talk about a relationship with God as if it's nothing but right theology and they just kind of leave it at that. Friends, Paul makes it clear right here in the opening verse, it's a package deal. Faith and truth, head and heart go together. To bring us into a relationship with God. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, there's really nothing else that I want you to listen to about this sermon this morning. I I want you to understand this. That the gospel does not call you to make a blind leap of faith and commit intellectual suicide. The gospel calls you to recognize that in Jesus Christ, you know something true about God. You don't know everything about God, but you know something that is true about God, that he's opposed to your sin. And yet in Christ, he loves you. If you will turn away from your sin and put your faith in him. See, when we know that, that's what we want to do. We want to put our faith, our trust in him. And so come into a relationship with him. I would love to talk to you more about this. I would love particularly to help you see that, that you're not sacrificing reason to put your faith in God. In fact, when you know who God is, faith is the most reasonable thing you can do because there is no one more trustworthy. 
and the cross and the resurrection prove it. Now, of course, Paul keeps going. And, and it's, it's the goal of this relationship that Paul actually lands on at the end of verse 1. It's really where he's driving to, the, the goal of this relationship with God. And, and as I said at the outset, that goal is godliness, the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. Having a genuine relationship with God leads to godliness. Paul's going to return to this again and again throughout this letter, which is why I think it comes up right away. God does not save us because we are godly. There's nothing that we can do to clean ourselves up. There is nothing that we can do to make ourselves kind of better candidates for God's love. In that sense, God's grace to us in the gospel is unconditional because there's nothing we can do to earn it. But the goal of our salvation isn't merely forgiveness and a ticket to heaven, and you can go on your merry way now. Paul makes it very clear. The goal of our salvation is godliness. God may not save us because we are godly, but he does save us so that in this life we will actually become godly. And this isn't just this one verse. This is all over the New Testament. Again and again, we're told that, that the ungodly will not see the Lord. Hebrews twelve fourteen. The ungodly will be left outside the new Jerusalem, Revelation twenty two fifteen. The ungodly will not inherit the kingdom of God, 1 Corinthians 6, 9. In that sense, friends, our salvation is very, very conditional. If our faith does not lead to godliness, in other words, then we are not genuine, true, Sons and daughters in the common faith. Because faith and knowledge of the truth leads to godliness. Now, I want to be clear here. It leads to godliness, not the way I-5 leads north to Seattle. Okay? That's not really the idea here. Because, you know, you can get on I-5, and I-5 does lead north to Seattle, but you, you don't have to go there. Right? You could, you could stop in Vancouver. Or you could you could keep going past, right? Uh, you 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 could you could take a little side road. No, the, the idea of faith and knowledge of God leading to godliness isn't so much of a path leading us someplace that we can you know get there or not. It's more like a seed leading to a tree, right? When when I when I plant an acorn, that acorn leads to an oak tree. It doesn't lead anywhere else. It never becomes an elm. It, it, it never becomes a maple. It leads to an oak. Always and every time. That's what Paul is talking about here. Faith and a knowledge of the truth lead to godliness. To, to pick a different image that Jesus used. You know, Jesus constantly called people to follow him. Well, a follower of Christ who doesn't follow isn't a follower of Christ. It's not just that, that you happen to have been on the same road that Jesus was on for a little while and then like stopped or, or, or got off or took a rest or something. No, a, a follower of Christ follows. Else he's not a follower. 
As Paul says in Romans chapter 6, verse 22, but now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness. And the result of that holiness is eternal life. Friends, we can't escape this teaching in the New Testament. Godliness is not required for salvation. Let me say it again. Godliness is not required for salvation. You don't have to become godly in order to get God to save you. But godliness is not optional either. It is not optional. Because it is the goal of our salvation. Now, I wonder what you think when you think of godliness. I think this is part of our problem here. Uh, you know, when I, when I throw out the word godly or godliness, who or what do you think of? Do you think of the Puritans? Right? Do, you, do, you, do you think of uh, fundamentalists? Do you, do you think of stiff and starched people, strict and always disapproving? Is, is that your image of godliness? You know, I, I got to tell you, if I don't work against it, that's my standard default image of godliness. Godliness, yeah, I, you know, I, I don't always enjoy being around people that are known as godly because of that definition of godliness. They are strict and starched and stiff and dour. And but friends, that's not what that's not what godliness is. Not according to the Bible. I think to understand what godliness is, we we need to realize that godliness is not finally keeping a set of rules. It's not finally a code of behavior. Godliness is to be like God. To to, to resemble him. It it is is to have the quality of of being like God. So, so, So manliness is the quality of being like a man. Or at least what we think a man is. Comeliness is the quality of being attractive. Godliness is the quality of being like God. I think that what that means, therefore, is that what you think of godliness actually tells you more about what you think of God than what you think of godliness. Here's here's the, the truth about godliness. We know what God is like through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not through our rules and regulations, not through our culture, not through our upbringing, not through our tradition. We know what God is like through Jesus Christ. Godliness, therefore, is is that quality of, of, of a human being that, that, that brings Holiness and justice and mercy and love all together in a single person in perfect wisdom. In perfect wisdom. Far from being a burden, therefore, to be godly, if we were really godly, that should feel like a privilege. Wow. In, in, in my person, to, be, to become increasingly someone where where purity and and holiness and goodness and mercy and love and justice and righteousness all hang together in wisdom. What a privilege. And, and you know, this is what we've been after as humans from the very beginning. This is is what Adam and Eve were after when they listened to Satan and ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They wanted to be what? They wanted to be godly. 
They wanted to be like God. That's what the text tells us. Only they wanted it on their own terms. Which is what we all want. We want to be like God. We want to be able to tell ourselves that we're like God. But we want to be able to do it on our own terms. Oh, but friends, that's, that's not the way it works. But when God saves us, when he puts his spirit in us and begins to make us like himself, oh, then we become godly. Genuinely, authentically, like God. On his terms, which are the only terms that we'll do. So Henson, what's our goal? Do we long to be known as the godly church? Or are we settling maybe for respectable? You know, we, just, we, we long to be the respectable church. Or, 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 or maybe we long to be the successful church. Or, or, or maybe we long to be the hip church or the, the relevant church or at least just the not dying church. Christian, maybe you're hoping that, that trusting in God will, will, will get you on in life. It, it'll solve your problems. It will, it will make life more manageable. Friends, God's goal for our life together is that together we would be godly. Not comfortable, not successful. Not necessarily hip. Godly. The people would be able to look at us and even though they can't see God, they would be able to say, oh, that is what God is like. God is like those people over at Henson. This impossible to describe combination of goodness and holiness, of purity and love, all hanging together in wisdom. That is Jesus Christ. Do do, do you long for that in your own life and for us together? I do. I long for that. I long to get away from, from the old cultural stereotype of what godliness is and to get to what it really is. The, the, The kind of display that causes people to go, oh my goodness, that must be what God is like. When I see people like that, when I see that kind of community. Now, how do we get there? How do we get to this kind of godliness? Well, Paul makes it really clear. It's not actually by pursuing godliness. It's by pursuing faith and growing in the knowledge of the truth. That's what leads to godliness. Uh, The the more we kind of aim at godliness, the more we're liable to fall into legalism. To the kind of cultural, fundamentalistic understanding of godliness as a bunch of rules. But the more we put ourselves in positions of faith, well, we got to trust God. The more we give ourselves to knowing the truth about God, then I expect, because Paul says it, that the Holy Spirit's going to take that and it's going to lead to godliness. We want to give ourselves to faith and to knowledge, growing in both. Because the goal is godliness. But there's more to it than that. Second, our faith also has a shared confidence. Our faith has a shared confidence. Look there in verse 2. A faith and knowledge resting on the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time. Paul isn't merely concerned that our faith produce godliness. He wants us to live lives filled with hope that the best is yet to come. 
best is yet to come. When Paul talks about eternal life here, he's not merely talking about a life that doesn't end. Actually, if my current life never ended, yeah, that wouldn't fill me with hope. (laughs) That would be a sad thing, right? So he's not just talking about a life that doesn't end. He's talking about the life of the kingdom of God. He's talking about the life of the age to come. That's what eternal life is. Yes, it doesn't end, but far more important than its duration is its quality and its source. Heavenly life. Now, this life is something that we already have as Christians right now. The Holy Spirit puts it in us when we are born again. But Paul's focus here is on its consummation. When Jesus returns and death dies and we come into the fullness of this life that we were created for. Now, Henson, this forward-looking, confident confident hope that the best is yet to come, Paul says, should characterize our lives if we are genuine, true sons and daughters in in the common faith. I've kind of already been hinting at this, but but you, you know where I'm going here. There is nothing worse than a dour, glum Christian. You know, it gives God and godliness a bad name. Now, we all know Christians like this. Oftentimes, we meet them in the mirror in the morning. We all know churches like this. Gloom and doom. Dour and sour. All they ever talk about is how culture is rotting, about how America is going in the wrong direction, about how everything is terrible. And and you know what? When When you're talking to one of these doom and gloom Christians whose life is not characterized at all by hope, the reality is they may be right. Culture very well may be rotting. America may very well be going in the wrong direction. Things may be terrible. But Christian, when was our hope ever for a better country or culture? Our hope is for eternal life. And according to Paul, our confidence in that hope is in God who does not lie. And the promise that he made before the beginning of time. Paul underscores that. He wants us to know that that this promise wasn't an afterthought to God. It wasn't something that he thought of after everything kind of seemed to go wrong. No, God's plan from all eternity would be that we would share in his life. So let me ask you, is your confidence in the right place this morning? I, I think it's actually quite easy to become a dour, sour, doom and gloom Christian. That's why I think we so often meet them in the mirror in the morning. It's not hard to get there. It happens when our hope declines from eternal life down to like a better life now. And when our our confidence shifts from the trustworthy God to, to something about this world. So if my hope is for a, a, a strong America, then my confidence is going to be placed in the promises of politics. If if my hope is in a well-adjusted family and a comfortable retirement, then my confidence is going to be placed in my parenting skills and my investment acumen. If my hope is in getting married, well, then my confidence is going to be placed in my looks or my winning personality. You do the logic. You fill in the blanks with your own things. It always works out the same. Know for certain 
Know for certain, Christian, that if your hope is in anything less than eternal life, and if your confidence is in anything other than the promise of God who does not lie, you will be disappointed. But if your hope and confidence are here, in what God has promised, and in his character, you will never, never be disappointed. Now, don't get me wrong. In saying that our life together here at Henson means that we should be characterized by a confident hope that we share together, I don't mean that we should kind of have a fake and artificial, happy, clappy culture, nothing ever goes wrong, we're all happy here kind of church. We are going to know real sadness in this life. We're going to experience real frustration. We're going to encounter genuine discouragement we are going to have other hopes that are disappointed. I don't have to tell you that because you're sitting here with them. What, what, what disappointed hopes have you brought into this room this morning? Tell me yours, I'll tell you mine. We all have them. But at the end of the day, as Christians... Our outlook is not determined by our present circumstances, but by our future hope, because that future hope is grounded in the eternal plan of God who does not lie. So what do we do then with all of our lesser hopes that are so often disappointed? Well, we've got to take them. and We've got to begin to think about them in light of this confident hope that we'll, we will not be disappointed in. So, so you guys know that, that my son is, is sick. I, I hope that he's going to get healthy someday. But I've got to take that hope, which may be disappointed, and then put it, put it up against a hope that I know will not be disappointed and realize that my far greater hope needs to be not for a healthy son, but for a sanctified son. And that can happen whether he ever gets healthy. Or, or maybe you're sitting here and, and you're, you're hoping for, for a happy marriage. Either because you're not married yet or, or, or you're in one and it's not happy yet. Well, you know what? A happy marriage is an incredible blessing from God. But he doesn't promise it to everybody. But he does promise you that you could have a holy marriage. A marriage that even in the midst of unhappiness is used to ground your hope ever more fully in him, in the Lord. And not in the things and the people, even the very best gifts that God gives us in this world. This is what we have to do. We have to take perfectly fine hopes, perfectly good hopes, but lesser hopes. And knowing that they very well might be disappointed, we put them up against the hope that will not be disappointed. And we live in light of that. In our life together, our faith has a common goal and a shared confidence. It also finally has a public basis. A public basis. Look at verse 3. At his appointed season, he brought his word to light 
through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God, our Savior. You see, Paul talks about the promise that God made before time began up in verse 2. But but God didn't just make a promise. In verse 3, Paul points out he kept that promise in history. Paul says that at just the right time, the appointed season, God brought his word to light through apostolic preaching. Paul's actually referring to two different but related things in this verse. He's referring on the one hand to revelation, and he's referring on the other hand to proclamation. And both ideas highlight that faith is not founded on a private mystical experience, but on the public and historical acts of God. So on the one hand, there, there's the word that God has revealed that he's that he's brought to light at just the right time, the, the appointed season. That word is the content of the gospel, the incarnation, life and ministry, death and resurrection and ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. In history, God kept his promise to save his people. In history, God kept his promise to give us eternal life. He did it through Jesus Christ, not a mystical experience, but a man who lived in Palestine, who who was written about, who was seen, who was touched, who claimed that he was God and who proved it by getting up from the dead. Friends, God kept his promise in history. But how do we know it? How do we know any of that? Well, that's the second thing that Paul refers to. We know what God has done publicly in history through the apostolic proclamation, through preaching. As eyewitnesses to and as authoritative spokesmen of the risen Lord Jesus Christ, the apostles have publicly declared once and for all the basis for our faith, the reason for our hope. It it, it is through the preaching of the gospel that we come to faith. It is through the preaching of the gospel that we grow in our knowledge of the truth. It is through the preaching of the gospel that we rest secure in our hope of eternal life. And this is because Christianity is not a philosophy. Christianity is not a lifestyle choice. Christianity is not a spirituality. Christianity is a publicly accessible, historically verifiable, capital T truth claim. That through Jesus Christ, we have eternal life. We didn't make it up. It's not finally verified through my experience. It's not accessed through culture or history or or through culture or family or ethnicity. Our common faith, our, our life together begins and continues and grows as the Holy Spirit gives us ears to hear the word of God, which proclaims what God has actually done. I cannot stress how important this is. Paul is going to come back to it again and again in his letter. We are not making this up. These are not myths and genealogies. This is why we prioritize the preaching and the teaching of God's word. It's it's what fundamentally defines my job description. I'm not an apostle. I wasn't there as an eyewitness. My job is actually just to pick up what the apostle said and keep repeating it to you. 
helping you understand what they said and apply it to your lives. Because it is through this public message that we come to faith and it is through this public message that we grow in faith. It's why we encourage you to not just come to the Sunday morning sermon, but definitely come to the Sunday morning sermon. But it's why we encourage you then, come early, come the first hour and study scripture with a, with a group of Christians in one of the Sunday school classes. Throughout the week, join a small group, get together with five or ten other Christians in somebody's home and study scripture together. Meet one-on-one. Take one of your lunch hours once a week or, or a coffee break once a week to sit down with another brother or sister and study scripture together because it is through the revelation of what God has done in history that we grow in faith, grow in knowledge. Bonhoeffer put it this way. The goal of all Christian community is that we meet one another as bringers of the message of salvation. Paul began it, but we pick it up and we keep repeating it. He goes on to say, the Christian needs another Christian who speaks God's word to him. He needs him again and again when he becomes uncertain and discouraged. For by himself, he cannot help himself. This is where I live these days in this ministry of the word that we have to one another. You think of me as the one who has the ministry of the word as I bring it to you, but friends, you bring it to me. You bring it to me in our conversations. You bring it to me in your emails. You know this difficulty that we're having with our oldest son and his health, and I'm often asked, how's your faith holding up in the midst of all of it? And what I find myself saying again and again is, my faith has become a community project because there are days when I'm discouraged. There are days when I am ready to give up. There are days when I cannot see the light. But then a brother or a sister comes along and they listen to me. They hear me. They sit with me in my grief or my pain And then they point me to God. They don't leave me there. Very gently. Maybe it's just a a simple passage of scripture that they share with me. And then pray. Maybe it's a word about, about the way they have experienced God's promises being kept in their own lives. Encouraging me to hope in those same promises for my life. Friends, this is what we do. We add nothing to the word. We bring nothing but the word to one another. Because God does his work through his word in this world, in our lives. And it is a ministry that has been entrusted to all of us. Paul concludes his greeting with a blessing. And that's where we're going to conclude. Grace and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus, our Savior. It's an incredible picture right there. Father and Son together standing to give grace and peace, not just to Titus, but to the churches that Titus is working with. And not just to those churches, but to all of God's elect. That includes Henson. The full provision and the unshakable stability 
that can only come from God. This is what we will need for life together. Because life together is going to be hard. As we explore this letter, there are going to be real challenges. There are going to be strong imperatives. But this is where it starts. With grace and peace from God. This is what we stand on. We profess a common faith together. But with his grace and in his peace, with all of his help, we will display our common faith as well. Not just profess it, display it as a godly life that cannot be dismissed because it so clearly resembles God. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would indeed extend your grace and peace to us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray that you would use us in one another's lives to strengthen our faith, to grow one another in the knowledge of you. Because we know that that leads to our godliness, the incredible joy of more and more resembling you incredible privilege of of more and more reminding the world of, of who you are. And so resting secure in our life with you because we see so clearly that it has already begun right now. Well, we pray that you would do this in Christ's name. Amen.